it's a pleasure to be here this morning and just worship the Lord and just take in the majesty of what He's done for us. You know, it's an interesting reason why I'm up here this morning. Um, I was speaking with Pastor Brent earlier in the week and he was saying, yeah, I'm kind of in a bit of a quandary right now. He said, uh, we finished our letters in pr- from prison, that series, and in the next couple of weeks, we've got a couple of special things coming up, and there's this one week kind of in the middle, and I don't really want to start Corinthians and then, you know, take a big break. So he said, I've been thinking, maybe I would do something, you know, kind of relevant with what's going on. Maybe I'd speak about Ezekiel or something. He said, nah, I kind of just did that with my prophecy series. And, and he said, I was thinking maybe I'd do something on Psalm 2. And, you know, why are the nations raging? Yeah, that's a really good one, Brent. You should do that. That's, you know, it's right up there. It's got, you know, it's got a little bit of prophecy in it, but it's, you know, it's really good. And he's like, yeah, he seemed pretty excited about that. Yeah, that's really good. He says, yeah, okay, you should do that. So so here I am. So be careful what you talk about with Pastor Brent. You may be up here. But, yeah, it's it's pretty neat. Um, I've just been really blessed this week in reading and studying for this and God has just showed me again and again who he is and what he's done and what an amazing thing and an amazing God that we have. And so it's just uh, come to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for this time that we can be together this morning, that we can worship you and praise your name. Lord, that we can come before you in remembrance of what it is that you've done for us and the salvation that you have given us. God, I just pray that as we look to your word this morning, that your Holy Spirit will move, that it will just work within us and bring your word alive to us, Lord. We just pray that you would move here this morning. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So I've titled this message this morning, Why Do the Nations Rage? Or the Nations Are Raging. And it's Psalm chapter 2. And it's 12 verses long. And it's a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that really is speaking about Jesus in his first advent and his second coming and even into the millennial reign. And David is writing by the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's looking forward prophetically into what God's plans are for the world. And we know that it's David, and we'll see that later in the sermon as we go through, because in Acts they say, it was David. So we know David wrote this psalm. And the psalm is divided into four sections. And we're going to look at each of them individually. Um, Three verses long, and they're almost like scenes. And in each scene we hear a different voice speaking. We hear the voice of man to begin with, and then in the second, we hear the voice of God. And then we hear the voice of Jesus, and lastly, we hear the voice of the Holy Spirit speaking. So we'll look at each one of these independently because there's so much to learn from each one. So let's read the first three, cha- or the th- first three verses. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? 
The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. So David begins by saying, why do they, why do, they do this? But he's not saying it like, why, like it's a big question. He's just saying like, why do they bother? It doesn't make any sense. Why are they coming against God? Because it's saying there that they are coming against God and his anointed one. So we're looking at the father and the son right there. And they want to break their bonds in pieces. They want to cast away their cords from us. They want to separate themselves from God. They don't want God's rule in their life. David, <clears throat> he, he's asking that like in that way because he understands who God is and what God has done. But the rebellion was Satan-inspired, and it started in heaven before creation even began. Because Satan decided for himself that he was going to set himself up as God. Satan was an archangel, a beautiful archangel, Lucifer, the son of the morning. But pride welled up within him, and jealousy, and he decided he wanted to usurp God's authority and become God himself. And so <clears throat> in Isaiah 14, 12 to 15, we read, How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weakened the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will also sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Five times in that passage, Satan says, I will. It's all about him. He wants to set himself up. He wants to separate himself from God. And yet the last verse of that passage, God has his way and says, yet you shall be brought down to Sheol to the lowest depths of the pit. And Satan is cast out of heaven. Well, that didn't end it. Satan just continued to want to defy God. And so he started moving in God's creation. And it started right in the Garden of Eden when Satan comes up to Eve and he says, first he casts doubt and he says, hath God really said, Eve, that you shouldn't eat from every tree in the garden? Is that really what he said? You sure you didn't kind of misunderstand him when he was talking to you? And she starts out quite, you know, uh, saying that, yeah, no, no, he said. He said, we could eat of every other tree in the garden, but not the one right in the middle. And he said, if we eat of that, we would surely die. Well, Satan moves on from just casting doubt to full-on lying. And he says to her, ah, you're not going to die. You won't die. God's just telling you that because he doesn't want you to be like him. And if you eat from that tree, then you'll be just like God. And that begins the lie. That begins the, the lie that Satan has been telling the world ever since. You can be like God. You don't need God. Who needs God? You can be God. God of your own life. We see it every day as the world grows continuously more and more cold towards God and his rule. 
We see it in the government. We see it in the courts. We see it in schools. They're just trying to pull God out of everything. They don't want to be associated with God. And the lie is that they make God out to be some kind of raging tyrant that just wants everybody under his thumb. He wants to rule with an iron fist and just make everybody do what he wants. But the fact is that that couldn't be any further from the truth. Jesus says himself in Matthew, Come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. You see, so submission to God's rule isn't some kind of crazy authority that is just dominating over us. Submission to God's rule in our lives is actually what releases us to freedom. So then we move on to the second scene here. And we look at what God is saying, the Father. And it says, He who sits in the heavens shall laugh. The Lord shall hold them in derision. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath and distress them in his deep displeasure. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And I think it's neat there that the first thing that we, get, we notice in that section is that God is sitting as he laughs. He's not standing up, walking the crystal floor there, just pacing and wondering what he's going to do, wringing his hands. But he's sitting. And it says he holds them in derision. It's like he actually is just sitting there shaking his head, thinking, what are you guys doing? They're feeble attempts to rebel. And then three times we're told in the scripture that God laughs, and all for the same reasons. Here in Psalm 2, and again in Psalm 37, verses 12 to 13, we read, The wicked plots against the just and gnashes at him with his teeth. The Lord laughs at him, for he sees that his day is coming. God knows. And again, in Psalm 59, 6-8, it says, At the evening they return, they growl like a dog and go all around the city. Indeed, they belch with their mouth, swords are in their lips, for they say, Who hears? But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them, and you shall have all the nations in derision. So God's not worried. <laughs> He's not worried about what man is going to do. Man can only go as far as God will allow him to go. We see in Acts chapter 4, after Peter and John have been arrested for healing the lame man at the gate of the temple, they're arrested and they're taken into captivity and the, the Sanhedrin and the rulers are saying to them, you've got to stop preaching. You've got to stop talking about this Jesus. We don't want you doing that anymore. And, and stop healing people. You're just, you know, you're just calling attention to them and, and making people believe in this stuff. And we don't want that. And Peter said to him, well, is it better that we should listen to you or that we should listen to God? And they didn't really have a lot to say about that. And they knew they didn't have much ground to hold them on, so they had to release them. And after they released they went back to the other disciples and the other believers and, and they told them what had happened. And rather than being discouraged or afraid, 
They took covenants in God's sovereign control, noting that it had all been spelled out already in the Old Testament. They say, So when they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David have said, see, David, (laughs) and they, they quote Psalm 2, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his Christ. For truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. See, they were thinking that this was all their idea. They were, they were getting together, and it was crazy because there was Jews and Gentiles, and they were all conspiring together. They were actually working together to get rid of Jesus. But they thought they were coming up with this great idea, but it was always God's plan for Jesus to die on the cross. This was not their plan. God was only allowing them to go as far as he had already decided what was going to happen. So you think... Man thinks he's devising all these grand plans, but he's only allowed to go as far as God is letting him. And there's so many details. I love it. There's just so many details in this account of Jesus' arrest and all of the things that happen that I just want to share one little one with you that I kind of discovered when I was studying. It was that when Jesus was arrested in the garden, and they were bringing him into the city to be tried and on that mock trial. The gate they brought him through was the sheep gate. And that was the gate that all of the sacrificial sheep, the lambs, were brought through on their way to the temple to be sacrificed for sin. And, you know, I mean, it's just one of those many little details that God just shows you. He's in the details. And he's in the details in our lives. You know, there's nothing that goes by in our life that Jesus doesn't know or care about. He loves us and he wants to be in the details of our life. The plan of salvation that God put in place was for Jesus to come and to die on the cross to pay that penalty for our sin. And it was a price that we could never pay. Only Jesus, the perfect God-man, could have paid that price and he did so for us but that was not the end you see when satan thought he saw jesus hanging on the cross and that they took him down and put him in the tube satan thought he won he thought ah victory i've got it he's dead i can carry on now but he was so wrong three days later jesus rose from the grave And Satan's problems began to explode exponentially because then there was a lot of people getting saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. And so he had to deal with all those people too. So he's still trying and God's still winning. But God sits and he shakes his head at the futile attempts of Satan to usurp his authority. But he does it with grace. You know, David Guzek says, God laughs in heaven, but he doesn't remain inactive. He laughs, but he doesn't only laugh. 
Before he acts against defiant mankind, he first speaks to rebellious humanity. This shows the great mercy of God. He has every reason and every right to simply act against defiant men. Love and mercy compel God to speak a word of warning before he acts. So even in God's wrath, before he does anything, again and again and again, he gives us chances. He gives us chances to turn our life to him, to listen to him, to see what he's saying. And in this instance, what is it that he speaks to them? He speaks to them about a time that is yet to come, that Jesus will be installed as the king of kings and the ruler of the whole earth. And we start to see into that millennium period. He says, and uh, yet, yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And the cool part about that is that he says, I have. He's already done it. God sees it as complete. There's no guessing with God. He's outside of time and he sees all things in the present tense. To, to God, everything is now. Beginning, middle, and end. God sees the whole picture. So he says, I have done it. It's already accomplished. So that's why they were looking and it was so futile for them to rebel. And then it goes on to say, that, uh, whoop, somewhere I jumped my page here, sorry. <laughs> so it doesn't matter whether we've seen it happen yet or not. If God said it's going to happen, it will, because it's already done. So now we can move into scene three, and we hear the voice of Jesus. I will declare the decree the Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give to you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Jesus begins by telling us what the Father said to him. And the Father said first, You are my son. Twice in Matthew, we hear God the Father telling us who Jesus is. At his baptism, in Matthew 3.17, he says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And again at the transfiguration on the mountain, in Matthew 17, 5, where God booms from heaven again, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. And he refers to him as his begotten Son. And that doesn't refer to created. Jesus was not created. Jesus was God. He is God. He always was God. There, it's begotten speaks of that relationship between two with the same essential nature and being. God then tells him that he will give him the nations as his inheritance. And again here we're seeing the future fulfillment of scripture as we look into Jesus' millennial reign. In Revelation 11.15, it says, the Then the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Amen. Amen. <laughs> this is going to be a time, and it'll be after the rapture of the church, and after the tribulation, 
at Jesus' second coming when he returns to rule on the earth. And the beauty of that time is we get to come back with him. (laughs) We're here with him and we're able to rule and reign with him. And it'll be a time when Jesus is physically on the earth, ruling from his throne in Jerusalem. Satan will be bound and thrown into the bottomless pit for a thousand years and will not be able to influence man. However, there will be mortal men living on the earth at this time, and they will still be born with a sinful nature. Their salvation will still depend on accepting Jesus as the Savior. These people, the Bible tells us, Jesus will rule with a rod of iron. There will be no opportunity during this time for man to get out of line. It will not be allowed. Three times in Revelation, we're told about this. In Revelation 2.27, it says, He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father. In Revelation 12.5, it says, She bore a male child who was to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and his throne. And again in Revelation 19.15, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And Revelation 19 is probably like my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. It's just an amazing thing. We see Jesus in all of his glory and all of his splendor coming back to the earth to, to absolutely take the position that is rightfully his as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus will rule, and this time will be a time of unprecedented peace on the earth. But at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be freed for a short time and will deceive and gather an army of those who will again rage and think that they can overturn Jesus and defeat him, only to be destroyed by the word of his mouth. Things will wrap up then, eternity starts, and that's another message for another day. (laughs) But we want to move on now to the fourth and final scene of this chapter. And, and it's a beautiful scene because now we get to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. And he says, Now therefore be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust in him. Now, therefore, the way that starts, those words bring us into the here and now. And it doesn't matter what time period people lived in, are living in, or will live in. The time is always now to hear what the Lord is saying to us by his Holy Spirit. God has no greater desire than to give people every opportunity to come to him and be saved. We we hear the Spirit saying five different things in this section. The first thing he says is be wise. And how are we wise? Well, the Bible says in Psalm 111.10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But it's only the beginning. How do we continue on in our wisdom? Well, the next thing he says is be instructed. 
And how are we instructed? We're instructed by reading the Word of God. You know, we, James tells us to ask for wisdom and he'll give it. But he already has. <laughs> this is it. This is God's wisdom and this is how we are to be instructed and to grow in wisdom. And once we have that, the next thing he says is serve the Lord. And we're to walk in the way that God has set out for us. James 1.22 says, be doers of the word and not just hearers only. You know, we need to move forward into what God has teaching us through his word. And then we need to live it out in our lives. And that brings us to the fourth thing where he says, rejoice with trembling. And as we rejoice in the life that we've been given by the saving grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're brought to trembling of the amazing awesomeness of all of it. And finally, he says, kiss the sun. And for me, this brings to mind a couple of pictures. And the first is of a repentant sinner kneeling before the Lord. And the Lord, in his mercy and love, extends his nail-scarred hand to lift that sinner to his feet. But the sinner, realizing in complete repentance and understanding, grasps the hand and kisses it in worship and thankfulness. And the second picture I have about that is the kiss of complete love and affection that is shown by the father when the prodigal son comes home. The Bible says that the father fell on the son's neck and kissed him. In total and complete forgiveness, he accepted him home. And that's what God is doing. He's waiting for us to come home, to fall before him and repent, and he will just hold us and love us. But you know, with all of this in mind, it's no wonder that the psalm goes on to say, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. The he in this sentence is talking about the father. It says, kiss the son, lest he be angry. And that he is translated capital L-O-R-D. That's Yahweh, that's God. And can you imagine why he would be angry? After everything that he's done, after all the chances that he's given man to be forgiven by simply believing in Jesus as the Son of God who came down from heaven to die on the cross for the sin of all mankind, to pay that penalty that we could never pay. All he asks is for us to believe, repent, and confess that Jesus is who he says he is. After all of that, man turns his back on God and refuses the free gift of life. He presents to us no matter what. Then finally, finally. Well... <laughs> Absolutely, that's pretty much what will happen, yeah. <laughs> then finally, he must judge. He must judge in his righteousness, and the sinner will perish. But John 3.16 and 17 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Amen. So why do the nations rage? It's because they don't know the Lord. 
They have not received him into their life. And they are living a desperate lie that they can control their own fate. Worship team, you want to come on up? So is the Holy Spirit whispering to you today? Has God been giving you an opportunity to come to see him? We've got no guarantee we're going to see tomorrow. And one second after you die, it's too late to decide. 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. The last line of this psalm says, Blessed are all those who put their trust in Him. Don't wait another minute to answer the Lord's call on your life today. Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for Your promise of grace and forgiveness and life in Jesus Christ. We thank You that You draw us unto You by Your Holy Spirit. Father, I just pray that you would move in hearts and lives today, that people would not wait. If they're hearing from you, if they're being drawn by your Spirit, Lord, I pray that they would just commit their lives to you. And you know, if you're here or if you're at home watching online and you feel God talking to you, you feel God just moving in your life and saying, This is something you need to do, don't wait. You really don't have much time. You need to give your heart and life to the Lord and experience the absolute freedom and joy and peace that only He can provide. So if you do that today, if you're at home, somehow let us know at the church. Email us, let us know. If you're here, there'll be people up front to pray today. Come up front, let somebody know that that's what you want to do or that you've already done it. You know, it doesn't have to be some grand thing. All you have to do is reach out to God and say, God, I'm a sinner. I realize that and I repent of those sins. I need you in my life. Forgive me and give me a new life. Create in me a clean heart, oh God. And he'll do that today. Don't wait.